Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, my name is Gary Mansfield. And this is the Ministry of Arts podcast, where each week I'll be speaking to a different artist. Now let's begin by bagging these bongos. And welcome to episode 231 of the Ministry of Arts podcast. Before I take you to this week's guest, I just thought I'd let you know that our first lot of merchandise has just landed. It is t-shirts, hoodies and tote bags. The first design is, well, you've just heard it actually. Now let's begin by banging these bongos. And they are in both male and female sizes. Well, apart from the tote bags, they're uh, they're non-binary. You can find the link to the merch shop in the Ministry of Arts Instagram profile. There is a link tree drop-down box, and it I think it's the top box there. And I've also put it on my personal Instagram profile, Mizog Art. And 100% of the proceeds go back into this podcast to keep it growing. But back to today's guest. Way back in, I think it was April, I finally got to speak with Damien Priestley. He grew up in Northern Ireland during the Troubles, which um, I think I may have mentioned it in this episode, but us over here on the mainland just used to see it on the news every now and then when something happened. But, I mean, the reality was what we saw on the news every now and then was, well, it's pretty much an everyday occurrence for for the people living in it, you know. So Damien, like many others, made it over to the mainland as soon as they were able. And, well, what was Northern Ireland's loss is the mainland's gain, right? But find that out for yourself. So please come with me as I spoke to Damien Priestley. Anyway, how are you this fine morning? All good, buddy. All good. It's been a busy, busy few weeks, uh, obviously for you too. But um, yeah, all good. In actual fact, just before... Um just before I hooked up on this, I was checking my emails and I got an email from uh, from Mr. Childish. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so we normally get the train into London together on a on a Thursday. It's not a planned thing, but I, I keep on running into him. So he, he texted me, he messaged me this morning, said, are you on the 10.30 choo-choo? <laughs> and I said, no. I said, you're on your own today. So uh, nobody else can put up with him apart from you and me, I think. So uh, that's it. He's, he's great stuff, isn't he? He's, he's top-notch. I, I moved to Rochester 10 years ago. And uh, after sizing each other up for about 18 months, we eventually started to speak. So um, <laughs> we have a, a, a healthy disregard for everybody apart from each other. No, that's not a bad thing. That's it's not a really bad not. thing at all. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I, th- I think that may be why I got on so well with him as he well. Did, Just that, he, that cynical did, look in the world. He did say that to me. Yeah. yeah, there's nothing wrong with that as well. Questioning everything in front of you, that's for sure. 200%. I think that's why he uh, threw my uh, hat in the ring for you, you know, so uh, yeah. 
Yeah. When him and me get together, it's a bit like uh, Pete and Dodd, to be quite frank. But there you go. Mate, that is not a bad thing, that's for sure. It's not. Damien, I do have seven questions that I ask each artist. Yep. And the first being, how would you explain what you do to someone that wouldn't know your work? Okay, how would I explain that? Um, it's a question I've been asked many, many times, obviously, and um, I've been, you know lots of presentations and stuff. And I always pitch it in a way that uh, it isn't for people who necessarily know anything about art um, uh, because in actual fact, I kind of regard myself as a storyteller, storyteller, first of all, and an artist second. I know that sounds a bit kind of trite, but um, storyteller is predominantly what I am. Everything I do is, is, led, is led by the narrative. But what I would say is uh, that my, my work uh, is a reflection of social injustice and also cultural movements born of societal upheaval. Um, so I look back and things from history, uh, do my research on those things and try to capture the essence as truly as I can based on the facts um, in a way which is visually contemporary, but uh, on two levels can be viewed at just a, as, a, a, as a competent piece of artwork, but really it's the story involved in that. Um, I know that's a long-winded way of explaining it, but it's, it's basically looking at societal uh, injustice uh, over, the, over, over the last 200 years, really, um, yeah. and telling it in a contemporary fashion. Yeah, well, it, I mean, that does actually sum it up because your work does very much feel like that it's a contemporary message with nostalgic imagery, if, Correct. if you don't mind me saying. Not at all. Obviously, by your accent, you're not from, you're, you're not from Rochester originally. No. Where, 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 where do you come from, mate? So born in 1966 in, uh, in Belfast, um, I say, I say East Belfast, because when you say Belfast, the next question is, uh, you know, they, they, they start to go down the path of uh, which food you kick with, as they say, where I come from, you know, yeah, yeah. Um, but, that, but that's, it's, that's kind of irrelevant to me. So, um, but Belfast, 66, and um, I finished school in 84, went to art college and uh, graduated in 1988, moved to London. I was in London for 25 years, uh, mostly in North London. And then ten years ago, moved on to Rochester. So that's the uh, that's the journey. Did you have creativity in home growing up? Uh, very much so. Um, so I have cousins. This is on both sides: mother's uh, family and uh, father's family. Um, I have cousins who are uh, artists and designers. Um, uh, my father um, was a painter and decorator by trade uh, back in the day, but he was very very competent um, in sign writing. And uh, my grandfather, similarly, they did all sorts of, you know, very, very clever painting techniques and sign writing as well. I had uh, uncles who could paint uh, to a certain uh, level. I had uncles on uh, both sides, actually, who could, uh, who could do all of that. And uh, aunts who were interior designers. So it's, it's throughout, throughout the whole family. But the only person who was really sort of, uh, shall we say, foolish enough to jump ship and actually throw his lot in with <laughs> trying, to, trying to make a living out of... Um, out of uh, full-time art was me. Nobody else was stupid enough to try that, you know. <laughs> you know, they all took the safe and, and some would say sensible route. Well, yeah, yeah. Did you have any contact with those who were creative at the time? Creatively, I meant. You know, would you sort of, you know, watch what they were doing and ask questions and pick up tips and what have you? Well, occasionally I would watch them. And, I, you know, as I say, my, my, my father was a, a pretty competent artist too, actually. And I remember um, watching him uh, going through the process and a few others, uh, cousins and stuff who could, who could draw. But I never really took any inspiration from that at all, to be quite frank. The thing that really that I remember from growing up, which was my biggest inspiration for my artwork now, is actually the conversations. The conversations which are being held in my grandmother's house or my aunt's and uncle's house were all, uh, you know, about politics. Um, yeah, yeah you know, about social uh, movements and all of those things, all very, very serious and earnest uh, conversations because of what was unfolding outside our front door, obviously, yeah. and the, you know, the troubles in Northern Ireland. So, so it was listening to how people thought and processed, uh, processed things, which is really, really what influenced me. I read a lot of um, American comic books when I was a kid. And, uh, uh, so the illustrators in those comic books were my drawing instructors for sure. You know, yeah. you got everything in there, you got, you know, your topography and your layout and your action and your drama and you know it, it, everything's in there that you need to know so they were the inspiration and my training ground for perfecting what I could already do I could always draw I could draw from a very very early age 
Um, but the thing that really fed how my brain worked in conjunction with the art was the conversations unfolding around me and also what was happening outside the front door, you know? Yeah, so I presume that when you was listening to the stories, the imagery was just being created in your mind anyhow. Absolutely. You said about what was going on on the outside your front door at the time of the Troubles. Was you in close enough to where it was going on for it to be a, a daily um, visual occurrence? 200%, absolutely. As I say, the, the part of Belfast I grew up, uh, it, it wasn't the worst by any means, but um, you couldn't say that it was untouched for sure. Yeah. Um, you know, so, you know, the 11th of July, the bonfires at the corner of the street, you know, certain stretches of the road, um, well, all stretches of the road with the flags and the bunting and everything else, uh, not in a celebratory way of any kind, but just as a uh, just as a, a kind of a, a paramilitary totem, shall we say. Yeah. Um, but having said that, from the age of 12, uh, 1978, um, all of my friends who I met through various channels were all Catholic. I grew up on a Protestant side. Um, and uh, so that was a rare thing for somebody from East Belfast to have friends um, from a nearby uh not even Catholic, but quite Republican enclave, you know. So um, it never bothered me. My grandparents were of mixed uh, um, background as well. So, and my family, you know, brought me up the right way to see that yeah. people are people, you know. And that if uh, if the working class people on both sides were allowed to be left alone um, and unified, then um, you know it would shake the, the government to its core. Yeah. You know, but that's a whole. Mind you, that's that's the same in in sort of every trouble or disturbance or whatever's happening it's normally the people at the top causing the fucking problems and riling up those further down the ladder isn't it god forbid that anybody uh put on a unified face because then uh there'll be a whole different uh, result of the uh, ballot box you know <laughs> wouldn't they just when was it that you decided that you wanted to become an artist uh i well again i know this sounds a bit uh I'm not so sure what way it sounds but I'll say it anyway. Um, I think that you're you're born an artist or you're not born an artist. Uh, it's your choice whether or not you pursue it or not. Um, mm. But the combination of being able to draw or paint with the extra bit of the creative creativity and the storytelling is my definition of being an artist. You know, there's lots of painters, but very few artists. And uh, I don't believe that all um, artwork should be purely decorative. I believe it should be there for another reason. You know, go to any you know national gallery or museum, and you know you'll see that. You know. Although back in the day they were controlled by the church and state, told what to paint um, up until you know the late 1800s. But as far as I'm concerned, I was born an artist. When I was asked in primary school, "What do you want to be when you grow up?" I said, "I already know. I'm going to be an artist." You know, and I I maintained that all the way through my schooling. I went to a very good grammar school back in the day in Northern Ireland. The way the education system worked was, if you pass your 11 plus, you went to a grammar school. It was nothing to do with yeah. your family background or the money money I had. Because if it was I wouldn't have been there. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. That's that's for absolutely sure. But um, it was a very academic school. They tried their very, very best to stop me uh, pursuing anything to do with art. So much so that when I came to my A-level, uh, they failed me in my art A-level. Um, having got over 90% all the way through, you know. So um, I went along to my interview for art college and I got in right away, uh, you know, and they, they couldn't really believe what had happened. But I knew I was born an artist and I knew that, that's what I was, there was no other choice. That's what I was always going to do, you know. What sort of stuff was you doing back then at the age of 17 or whatever you, when you was going to college? So um, I actually, most of my friends were considerably older than me. So I was born in 66. Most of my friends were 59, 60, 61, um, you know, born in those years. I mean, that you was know, a bit I, concerning at first. I thought you were knocking about old men. No, no, you seem, to, you seem to forget there wasn't any priests in East Belfast. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, what was I going to say? So, yeah, they were kind of born then. So they would have been um, original punks, sort of 77, 78 kind of thing. You know, arguably, yeah, punk started in 76. But what I'm saying is, for the sake of argument, 77, 78, they were all punks in Belfast. And a, a couple of them went over to live in London in 77, 78, and all the rest of it. So, you know, um, they, they were kind of the friends that I, that I grew up with. So consequently, at the age of 17, most of them were still in bands or they were involved in that kind of scene, you know, fashion, music, uh, fanzines, all that kind of stuff. So I got involved producing um, record covers, uh, little things for their little sort of mixtapes and their cassette tapes, band posters, all that kind of stuff. And I was also customizing uh, 83, for instance, I was customizing 
you know, ghetto blasters because the early days of hip hop were really just coming out. And I was reading about yeah, that. Yeah. I'm fascinated by that, that creativity from, from, you know, from the Lower East Side of New York and stuff. And I thought that's the same as what we're going through, you know, and the creativity that was coming out of there, I was so drawn to. So I was customizing T-shirts, ghetto blasters, doing record posters. Um, I was always into my clothing and fashion and uh, approached some shops and said, look, can I do some adverts for you guys? And, you know, kind of do some window displays. So I've never been one to not uh, go and knock somebody's door i've always cold called all all yeah. the way through you know and nice. even after the, even after the internet came along in 95 96 i still cold call people you know i rarely send anybody an email even today so i yeah. i still knock the door pick up the phone you know so when 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 you got no choice but to go and knock somebody's door back in the day you know uh 82 83 when i was doing this um, I, you know, and I meet young artists today and, you know, there was a guy uh, who emailed me, found me and he emailed me and he was in the States, uh, uh, originally brought up in uh, Newport, Rhode Island. Um, and he started saying, well, how do you, how do you do this? And I'm like, when you get everything, then it, it kind of limits their imagination and their initiative is the word I'm looking for, you know? Um, so I, I try to say, put something on paper and drop it through their letterbox and they're yeah. going, what, what do you mean? And I'm like, just send them something, you know? They'll open, a, they'll open an envelope, but before they'll open an email, I said, and if you if you don't live by that rule, they'll never find you, you know? Well, on that subject there, I started writing to artists from prison, obviously yes. via pen and paper. Yeah. And I found now that when I'm trying to get an artist, Billy Childish was one of these. Yeah. Couldn't quite get through sending emails. You don't know if they're just being um, put in the trash, going to junk because they're not interested, they haven't got time. It's just another email that people have to read. You know, I'll never take it personally if my emails don't get answered. But no. when it gets to a point and it's someone I do want, like Billy, what I've done, I just picked up my pen, hand wrote a letter, sent it off. Yep. And I would say 80% of them get answered. This is what I'm saying. I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm on the same page, literally and metaphorically right there. Because it's, it's, a, it's a personal thing between me and whomever's um you know receiving the the, the yeah. letter and the most basic form of communication back in the you know like writing a letter is now seen as somebody who really really has made the effort you know bizarrely but that's what it means you know and there was there was a comedian i was trying to get on as well and um, i've done the same to him the I, I did get a text message back um and it just said how old school old and, school uh, <laughs> yeah and it was it was that that, that got us in there yeah, I sent out a load of uh, invites to galleries and gallerists and curators and stuff about, oh, I want to say 2008, so maybe 2007, so about 15 years ago, and I put them into uh, an envelope, and I sealed the envelopes with a wax seal. Nice. I shit you not. Yeah. <laughs> it, did it get noticed? Of course it got noticed. Yeah. Um, you finished college. Did you come over to London straight after? Yeah, so my, my degree, bizarrely enough, um, uh, was in uh, fashion design and illustration. When I, when I finished um, my foundation year, um, which was at a great college, technical college, and we got the experience, you know, all sorts of uh, mediums and disciplines. And um, I, as I say, I'd always been interested in, uh, in, in fashion and culture and, you know, this creativity from sort of nowhere. Uh, and fashion was always one of those things I was really interested in. And I read, obviously, the ID magazine, Face magazine, all the usual sort of, su you know, suspects back in the day. I just, I thought, if you're only going to go to college once. So go and study something that you're really passionate about. Because in actual fact, and again, this sounds perhaps a little conceited, I knew I had the capabilities to go into graphics if I wanted to, or go into fine art if I wanted to. But fashion was a challenge to me. And I thought, this is something I really want to do. So even if I get my degree in fashion, I, this is transferable skill. skill. I, I'm not going to forget how to draw and paint. So when I get my degree, um, uh, I can go on and pursue whatever field that I want in the arts. But I did hope to get a job in, uh, in, in fashion. And, and while I was there uh, for the three years, I won all sorts of awards and bursaries. And I did incredibly well at it. Now, in third year, um, when I got my degree, I... Uh, I got the award for design graduate a year and all sorts of stuff. Um, but 88 was a tricky year. Um, my final collection was picked up by quite a few members of the press and it sold incredibly well. My art college were, were, were uh, kindly let me uh, use the facilities over the summertime and I made up, you know, quite a lot of uh, stuff and sold those. I had always intended to go to London in the October 
um, but I was offered a job in Paris, which fell through at the last minute. So I went. I followed on my original plan and went to uh, went to London. But massive uh, recession, one of the many throughout the 1980s in uh, in London, so or in Britain, should I say? And uh, no one was hiring freelancers, and certainly no one was giving away full time contracts. Yeah. So although I was uh, doing freelance work for magazines based in uh, Paris and then Italy and in New York and illustration work. There was nothing really enough for me to sustain living in London. You know, it's always been expensive and it was no different back in 88. So I ended up taking on a part time job in a restaurant of all things and working hospitality for uh, for uh, for many years. But all the while I was in there, I was doing commercial artwork for other people that I met in bars and restaurants. I was doing inter inter internal murals and menu designs and stuff. So I kept my hand in all the way through until I'd built up a sufficient sort of secondary business outside of hospitality that I was able to jump ship from the restaurant and apply myself full time. And from 1995, um, that's when I've been a full time artist making his, his income from that without any without doing anything else, which is a blessing, to be frank. Yeah, totally agree. The, we've had several on here who have started their art career in the fashion industry doing yeah. fashion design. And it wasn't until, I mean, I wasn't aware that you'd done that, but when you mentioned that you did, you've still got echoes of that fashion drawing in your drawings of today. You can, as soon as you said it, I could see it in your drawing straight away. Yeah. Well, the, the, the work, the freelance work that I got mostly when I finished art college was actually for uh, fashion forecasters. So they would be, you know, predicting trends 18 months, you know, down the line. Fashion business is a completely different beast now. Um, 35 years on, uh, it doesn't really work that way any longer, although there are forecasters that they're up at sort of speed that, uh, you know, uh, sweatshops can churn out, you know, designer clothes within 24 hours. It, it, so it's it's not really the same as it was then. Yeah. But 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 the element um, of uh, storytelling was based on storyboards. And so you had to bring in a narrative and topography and color and all sorts of stuff. So when I compose a painting now to tell a story, it's very much based on the layout and the construction of a storyboard was in a fashion story, very much so. Mm. And some, not all, but some have text um, accompanying them just to yep. maybe point us in a direction of where you're uh, intending us to go. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and again, that probably comes from my childhood thing of uh, looking at comic books, you know, you know, the voice bubble and everything. So I've always been interested in that sort of balance of, you know, pictorial imagery along with text um, in a way. But sometimes it's it, you, you, you can uh, you can mislead your viewer completely. So I did a, a series on the Great Depression um, of, uh, the you know, the banks collapsing uh, on Wall Street and stuff. And uh, I put on some facts and figures. And, and so when people were looking at the imagery, they said, oh, I can't believe it was so bad. And, you know, 1922, da, 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 da. and I said, well, that's the thing. The images are from 1922, but the figures on there are from now. Yeah. So it, it's that push and pull. You know, you can get people to look and engage and then you kind of hit them a metaphorical slap. You know, so it's, yeah, it's one of those yeah. things. So that's why I put the, the words on there as well. So I did the series on you know, Malice in Wonderland, which was looking at, you know, corrupt, polemic, religious, abusive sects in America in the 1970s. And, you know, the phrases on there were, you know, supposed to entice people in. And then when they realized what it was, you know, that's that's the joke. That's the electric yeah, shock. Yeah. You know, that's it's the taser effect right there, you know. So, yeah. Yeah, it's the hook hidden in the MAGA, isn't it, on the, on the totally. end of the line? Totally, totally. A lot of your work has underlying darkness that's for sure it's very atmospheric even the, the subjects that you often put into your artwork them themselves have had personal dark stories as well haven't they 100 percent. and again I've, I've investigated everything from uh, the corruption of the vatican to prostitution in vienna in 1898 um you know i've looked at people going missing in the 1970s the re reason why i'm drawn towards this is not only because of kind of the childhood that i had and the importance of telling stories that aren't told is that you know art's been doing this for you know hundreds of years i don't believe you know this this trend of purely decorative art really only kicked off in the 1850s you know uh, when when uh, art wasn't in private collections, uh, you know, for, for the ordinary people not to see. That's when it went into museums and you could go along and visit that. And then, you know, print changed everything so you could look at it in a book, which had never happened before. You know, people kind of take that for granted, you know. So, yeah, so I, I, I'm sort of 
trying to bring art back to where, where it was, you know, tell, tell a story that people don't know about or don't want to know about. They're totally determined not to know about. And, and I'm with I, you 100% I, on that. Yeah. And I, I just, I find things that, and, and the, the other link between the stories is it's not just something tra tragic that happened in 1920. The other common thread, and it's, it's a continuous thread throughout is, there's a repetition of this. I'm telling these things because they're still happening, you know? So I did a, a series called uh, Palida Mor, which means uh, deathly pallor um, in Latin. And it was about uh, a, the first uh, really investigative journalist, a guy, a guy um, who worked for the Pall Mall Gazette in the 1890s. And he, 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 he found stories which nobody else was talking about. <clears throat> One of the stories was people trafficking between uh, France and England, normally for prostitution. And he exposed, you know, the people who were behind it and he became a real thorn in the side of the establishment. And he, uh, he, he, he was a real vanguard and he, he changed a lot of things, including working conditions for children in factories and all sorts of stuff. And, uh, but the thing is, the reason why I picked up on that story, not just because it was fascinating and awful, it's because it's still happening. And the fact that these things still continue to happen Sometimes the way they address them is in a way that other people don't really think about. And that's art for me, you know? So if you yeah. put it on a canvas, people go, why are you doing that? At least you've started the conversation rolling, you yeah. know? By the way, that, that guy, his name was uh, W.T. Stead. And um, he, uh, he changed so much in the 20 years. And, and, and after his, his, his constant, constant work, he was one of the first uh, journalists, editors to actually hire the first female uh, journalist as well, anywhere in London. Um, so he, as I say, he was a real forward thinker. But as I say, he decided, I'm going to, you know what, I'm going to take a break. I'm going to, I'm going to go on a cruise. I'm going to do this. I've worked nonstop for like 25 years here. I'm going to go on a cruise. And he decided to go to New York. And he thought, well, you know, New York at the turn of the you know, last century was just as bad as London, uh, maybe 20 years behind. But, uh, and he thought, maybe if I'm over there, I can do, make a difference over there. I'll approach some newspaper editors and do this. And of course, luck being, luck being his luck he booked the passage on board the titanic and he perished all right and by the way as belfast people say uh, the titanic you know they say it was okay when it left here all right so <laughs> you know, that's, that's just a bit of an aside but um ryan reynolds here from Mint mobile with the price of just about everything going up during inflation we thought we'd bring our prices down so to help us we brought in a reverse auctioneer which is apparently a thing Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. But, uh, so but, but he was such a thorn in the side of the establishment that they wrote him out of the notables who perished on the board or on the ship. And it was about 50 years later, somebody was researching it and went, how come this guy never got a mention? So that's what draws me to do what I do. You know, I'm looking for a story which keeps on doggedly repeating itself when it just shouldn't, you know. So that's what I believe art should be about. I totally agree. I mean, there's, I find there's absolutely nothing wrong with creating or buying decorative art. No, of something, course not. Something that makes you feel good or sad or for whatever emotion it evokes. But personally, I... I don't understand why people wouldn't put a story in their work. That's um, me. I mean, I've got my, my house is full of art, and uh, some of it's bought purely for its visual and decorative, uh, you know, uh, yeah. you know, look and attractiveness and everything else. So there's plenty of good stuff out there. It's just not what I'm going to be producing, you know. And the, the difference is as well, Damien. The the story can can really move that that artwork up a few rungs in the in the internal ladder, if you, if you know what I mean. Always, 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 always. I mean, you, you know, I, I, you know I'm, not, I'm not foolish enough to think that what I produce is in sort of, on one level, just purely visually attractive. You know, I know I can draw and paint well. Ah, but, but that's got to be the, sorry for, for butting in on you, Damien, yeah. but that has got to be the first pull. That's to stop people walking past. So it has to have something visually, and then you have to entice them in to be able to, 
visually see the story is, is yeah yeah you can't be yeah. an organized stick man, stick man and then say no, no but it's a yeah. really important story you know you, you know it's got to be it's got to be right but but certainly if somebody buys something and i think um that they are that this kind of misled you know uh by what they think it is i need to explain to them what it is you know yeah. um which is why i rarely uh sell through galleries because um and um, I've said it before and I'll say it again, the majority of galleries are very, very lazy, okay? They don't want to do the legwork. Leg and if the artist is complex in his thought process and his creative process, they just don't want to do the legwork. Most of them are too happy to hammer a nail on the wall, turn a spotlight on, open the door and try to take their 60%. I'm not having it. So uh, because the story is so important, um, that's why I sell direct. I, I, I'm not gallery represented. I don't have an agent. I've never had that. I've shown all over the world and I've sold over a thousand paintings, etc. And one of my biggest collectors has 47 paintings hanging in her house. So it is what it is, but they all understand to the, you know, A through Z exactly what those pieces are about. I've never sold anything and went, hey, they think it's just an attractive girl and outside, outside a church. No, 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 no. I, I let them know, you know, yeah. it's, it's too important. The story obviously gives the drawing a bit more emotional gravitas and and that's what we're all trying to do right totally absolutely well which piece that you've created damien has got the strongest emotional connection okay so it was one piece that i created uh, normally i do works in collections which is again a bit of a sort of an echo of my from my time in in fashion you know um i think if uh you know, back in the day, if it required 12 outfits to tell a story, that's what I did. And I hate to sort of make that parallel because one's, you know, uh, shallow, shall we say, and one isn't. Um, um, I'll let you decide which one, which way around that goes. But it, so I tend to do things in collections. But the one painting that I did, which had the biggest emotional con con connection, was a piece called Crows. And it was a one-off piece because the story was, was told in that one image. Um, I try to do that, you know, for every painting I do, but for this one, certainly one image, and it's uh, it's a it's a it's a painting, quite a large painting. It's about it's hanging right beside me, five feet by three feet on canvas, which is quite big for me. Um, and it's just a painting uh, of a girl uh, taken off a black and white photograph, and she's standing and she's looking slightly down, and she's wearing a, a Mickey Mouse T-shirt. And the painting's called Crows, so it was taken from. Um, a story which I read oh, many, many, many years ago, 15 years ago, about a girl called uh, Kalinka Pambersky, and who was uh, murdered by her stepfather um, just around her 16th birthday. So her stepfather was a German chap, um, and he, he drugged her uh, for reasons um, to nefarious dimension, and uh, she passed away from the, from the drugs that he administered. He then organized for the autopsy to be bypassed. He, this chap was a dentist and he was quite well connected. This was in France, although he was German. And um, anyway, to cut a long story short, he, he, he fled as soon as he thought that, you know, there might be a bit uh, of too many questions being asked. And the girl's natural father was never happy with the autopsy and the whole story of what had happened. And he decided to investigate it. It took him close to 30 years to, uh, to get to the bottom of it and to get justice in the end. Uh, Germany wouldn't extradite this chap. Um, so he actually got a couple of uh, guys from the former Eastern Bloc or former Yugoslavia, should I say, to, uh, and he hired them to go across the border and kidnap this guy, tie him up, bundle him, and bring him back into a police station in Paris where they were obliged to arrest him and follow yeah. through with the yeah. investigation. And it hit me so hard that, you know, you know, the love of this father, the, the, the despicable nature of the stepfather, um, the complicit nature of, uh, of the mother, and perhaps that's, that's controversial to say that, but she kind of turned a blind eye. And uh, this, this guy's just this thing for justice, you know? He just wouldn't give up. And that story resonated with me because of various things that happened to me when I was growing up with various friends and stuff as a result of the troubles. Yeah. That there's a lot of stories which just disappear because people don't have the, you know, the wherewithal, uh, you know, or the energy even really to pursue to get these justices, you know? And uh, not only that, but the girl was born sort of in and around the same time as me, you know, she was born in April 1966. And there was something about it. I just thought, 
what a what a what a tragic story, but what a love story too, you know. And um, and uh, was just deserved? No, because the young lady's dead, you know, and the guy's in jail, you know. That does it's not going to bring her back. Um, and the, the natural father, he lost his own family because of it. Is is everything he had? And the reason why I called it Crows was because. In 1976, I was hospitalized with quite a serious uh, illness, and uh, it was in a, I was put in the isolation ward in a Victorian-style hospital, <clears throat> and I was basically in there on my own. wasn't allowed any visitors came had to stay outside the, the glass cubicle, and every morning it was up on a hill just out in Greater Belfast, and it was between uh, the last two weeks of June, first two weeks of July, in 1976. So I would have been 10 years of age, and every morning around 5 a.m. Uh, there was tall pine trees, uh, tall trees out the window, and it filled with crows, um, and this murder of crows, you know, and the sound of them, when I say it filled with crows, it was hundreds of them, and the squawks of them, and the way that they sort of filled the sky, and this kind of like, uh, almost uh, like, like, like tar, like bitumen, you know, across the sky, yeah, and this yeah. tangle of wings and the sound, it was something that resonated with me and stuck with me, and because I was very, very ill, very, very ill, uh, down to you know three and a half stone or whatever, and uh, it was something that 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 image and that sound has always then resonated and connected with deep trauma. Yeah. And because because when I read this story, I thought, wow, this is just like one of the worst things I've ever read. I need to sort of acknowledge this story in my own brain by painting her. And it was the painting was based on the photograph, which was the last photograph taken of her, approximately two days before she was murdered. And in the background of the painting, if you look carefully in real life, uh, you'll see wings, black wings, and that's the, the wings of the crows in the background. So that's the one with the most emotional content. And um, that's proved by the fact that it's not for sale, never was for sale. Um, I did it because I needed to get that story out of me and on yeah, the candle, yeah. almost in a sort of form of exorcism, you know? Yeah, but it's it, not- it sort of almost answers an unasked question, doesn't it, you know? Yes, absolutely. Um, art as catharsis. You know, uh, and I, and I try to I try to have that through eighty percent of what I do. You know, there's a couple of things that I do. You know, paintings of my favorite artists or people who are cultural icons and stuff, and that's kind of my light relief. But I, I still do them for a reason. You know, because I think they're important enough to be documented. But as I say, 90 percent of my work is looking at things which uh, people just don't know about, and I think they should be made aware of. You know. Yeah. Well, you're saying about cultural icons. I mean they're cultural icons for a reason because when you see them that evokes a feeling of an atmosphere or of a story you know of, or of, an, of their own narrative yeah yeah absolutely a cultural icon is the opposite side of the coin of a, of a stereotype stereotypes exist because those kind of people are out there you know and cultural yeah. icons are out there because you know society has recognized them as doing something which has had a, a lasting effect like a pebble in a pond you know the ripples that come out from that are the are the you know perhaps the dilution of the original idea, but they, they started it, you know? Yeah. I mean, you've got, a, you've got a couple of, well, I mean, you've got one, one that I saw of Francis Bacon and another of Johnny Cash and both yeah. of them have got a similar sort of air of darkness and leave me alone um, at, attached to their image as far as I'm concerned anyway. 200% I'm drawn towards creatives, which are uh, not, not intentionally uh, controversial because it's yeah. easy to be, it's easy to be sensational. Anybody can be sensational, you know. Uh, you don't have to be clever to be sensational, you know. But but certainly that other that other side, um, which is something that they can't shake and they don't want to shake. That's something that's in them. Yeah. I'm drawn to that as a character, as a story, you know. And certainly as an artist, if I'm going to paint their portrait, it's already in there, and I try to capture that essence, you know. You yeah, well, like you say that the, the I mean a, them two plus many others that you put into your work there they've got meaning from there from the center of them outwards whereas you know as you're saying men, many today who try to sensationalize possibly just for social media they're they're controversial on the surface aren't they you know and it doesn't go much deeper than that it's 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 it's, it's no mistake that the uh, you know the sensation show was called sensation right back in the day Oh, I'm no, you know, it's another thing that I may or may not have in common with Mr. Childish that I'm no fan of the YBAs, you know, um, you know, as far as I'm concerned, it was the biggest uh, marketing experiment um, ever created. You know, Mr. Saatchi, very successful, perhaps the most successful advertising company ever. And uh, he, he, he got a he got a bunch of people and sold them as a, as a product. And that does not help the art world. It's already it's already messed up as enough as it is. You know what I mean? So. <laughs> 
Um, all he did was all he did was feed it from the top, you know. Yeah, I mean that that view isn't mine, but I can totally understand where you're coming from. That's for sure. Yeah, just don't get me started on Banksy. I'll I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll wreck my mobile phone. All right. <laughs> and I don't mind him either. Horses for courses, though. If yeah, we all like the same thing, it'd be yeah, fucking boring, right? When you come off this, just Google Black Lerat, okay? B-L-E-K. Oh, I know, I know, yeah. All right, giant. So, anyway, moving on. <laughs> yeah, no, I know, I know all that. If there was you and five other artists, past and present, Damien, what would your ideal group show be? Um, well, here's the thing. I kind of, I kind of admire sort of um, men of science more than men of art, to be quite frank, you know, because they're truly coming up with something that's never come up with before. You know, if somebody, somebody, in, you know, discovers something in science, it's always existed, but they kind of, you know, no one was aware of it, then they discover it, right? So that's, that's brand new, you know, um, whereas creativity always sort of comes from, there's, there's nothing really truly new, you know? Uh, so it's always sort of based or, or, or something, you're always striving, striving for your own voice but there's very few things that are something, you know, which is completely new. So I'd just like to start that way. But if I was going to do a group show, um, the, the people who I would like to do a group show with uh, would, would, wouldn't want to show with each other and they wouldn't want to show with me. Right. That's, that's so, what I do. So it is ideal. So uh, my, my favorite artist of all time is Egon Sheila. So he would be in there. Uh, Toulouse Lautrec would be in there. Walter Sickert would be in there. Uh, Andy Warhol would be in there. Um, and then probably one of the great uh, comic book illustrators, you know, um, because as I say, they people are a bit snobbish when it comes to illustration, and um, I'm not. I think that they are uh, equally as good uh, artists and draftsmen and creatives as as some of the the greats as they're known. I'm, you know? I'm with you. I'm with you. you know? So I would have I would have uh, Frank Frazetta in there, or I would have uh, John Buscom in there. One of those guys. Um, okay. But as far as high art, shall we say, goes, it would be would be those other guys, you know. But, I mean, you've obviously got illustrative echoes in your work, and all the time people are including it in their work, then others can't dismiss it, you know, because it's there. In, it crosses over. It, yeah. that's, that's my view, anyway. Totally, totally. And, yeah, to lose the trek, I can see um, his influence in, in your work also. He was a he was a he was a poster designer. You know, he's this illustrator. Um, he's very very line led. Uh, I'm uh, because I'm kind of regarding myself as a draftsman. Um, I'm I'm very led by line silhouette and negative space. And uh, you know, uh, but then again, you know, the, the the sort of streets in Paris that he was hanging around. I'm drawn to that because he was going to the city side of Paris. You know. Uh, Walter Sickert, the same thing, and you know, Camden Town group of painters. They were drawn to drawn the you know the theatre girls, and uh, who were also you know working and working by night as that, and by day as prostitutes, all that kind of. I'm just drawn to those people who wanted to capture the stuff that people would go, why do I want to hang that on my wall, you know? Yeah. And I've always been drawn to those people, you know. And Sheila would be the uh, the, the zenith on that for sure. Yeah, no, mate, you're completely right there. And if you wasn't an artist, what do you think you'd like to be? I don't even have an answer for that. I really, I really don't. I really don't. I really don't. Well, I've said this a, a million times on here as well. Okay, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Okay. So, all right. So, if I'm forced, um, it would be a writer. Okay. Yeah. So you still couldn't get away from the creative. No way, man. <laughs> wait. The idea of walking into an office is <laughs> I would just walk straight across, open up the window, and then that'll be out on the other side, regardless of which floor the office was on. Yeah, yeah that'd be it. Yeah. Well, as, I, as I've said, that people who have had creativity in their life, all their life, have trouble answering this question. Whereas people like me, who entered the art world, will say this job, that job, that job, because it's a job that they've enjoyed before or wish they would have um, gone into before the creativity. Yeah. Um, something I've written down that I forgot to ask earlier, um, a lot of your work will have a vertical line, possibly even a coloured line, breaking yep. the illusion, if you like, or yep. separating the, the the canvas. What yep. is the notion behind that? So it's something I started to do about, uh, I guess, about seven years ago. Um, it's not on everything that I do, but it is on a lot of the work that I do. And the first time I used it, um, it was there 
it, well, it, it, it's a multi sort of, uh, it has multi meanings really, depending on the piece that it's in. Sometimes it's, it's a line to say which side of the fence that this guy stands on, not necessarily um, is politics, you know, to the right or to the left, but as, as society views him, is he, is he to that side of the line? You know, is he on the right side of the line as society would judge him or is he on the wrong side of the line? Um, the, the color of the line, um, if it's black, and it, it, it bisects the figure um, in some place. It normally is to do with running through their heart or their hand, depending on what it is, how they thought, whether or not they were troubled or not. So Francis Bacon, for instance, a black line runs right through the center of his heart and another one runs right through his hand. And that's my, my sort of indication and my acknowledgement of how he was hardwired. In another one, it might be a white line. And uh, for instance, I did a piece on a girl who died um, of, uh, of drug abuse. So the white line, is, is there to obviously, you know, to reflect the drug and also it bisects her arm as well, you know, so, and it was an overdose. So it's a very subtle indication. And if you don't know what you're looking for, you just go, that's a nice addition to it, but it's there for a reason. And it, like I say, everything in my, my paintings is there for a very re reason. I, I plan it all in my head before I even pick up a pencil and right down to the last sort of brush stroke. It's, there's no accidents. It's, it's already finished in my head. I see it in my head and then it comes out. But these lines, so, and again, the color, for instance, there's a colored line on one of the Warhol pieces. That's literally just one of the colors that he used more often than not. Yeah. Um, um, but as I say, it's normally an indication of how society judged these people rather than how they judged themselves. Um, and people are all too quick to do that. But that's what those lines are there for. They're an indication of uh, who they are, uh, as, you know, how they're seen um, in, by ordinary people, so shall we say, you know. Well, they definitely work, that's for sure. Um, I mean, many people wouldn't ask the question, possibly, you know, but seeing that little bit of line, that adds a little bit of mystery to people who will ask the question. Absolutely. So I did a, a series called uh, I Am Not, um, looking at the American Civil Rights Movement, 1963, Birmingham, Alabama, all that kind of stuff, through the eyes of uh, James Baldwin and John Lewis and those kind of guys. And when I put the lines in there, um, I determinately put the black line on the ones where um, there was a white oppressor. And I did it determinately flip that, uh, you know, to uh, yeah. make people sort of take them out of their comfort zone. Why did you put a black line on that one? Why did you put a white line on that one? And just by throwing that into the equation makes people look at the piece with an extra an extra eye, you know, they really need yeah. to know what is in there. Or, or I did one based on the, uh, you know, again, race riots and, uh, and, uh, you know, the, the abuses that the people suffered, the, the civil rights um, uh, movement suffered on uh, Edmund Pettus Bridge in Selma. And the line I put in there was a red line. Well, that's obvious because there were so many people so badly beaten there, you know, yeah, that that was yeah. there. And they, they really did pass, cross the line of what's acceptable. The line was, you know, it was just, it was just ignored. So it was there again for a very specific reason. Um, uh, yeah, so that, so that's, that's, that's kind of it. But it, uh, it's not in every piece that I do because it's not relevant to every every piece that I produce, but it's in quite a lot of them. Brilliant. And I mean, you said you don't really go into exhibitions or, or show on the wall too much, but have, have, have you got anything coming up anyway? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I normally do a couple of shows a year. Up until COVID, um, I would have done uh, a show in, um, well, up until Brexit. I would have done a couple of shows in Europe, and now I can't. It's cost prohibitive. You just can't do it any longer. They expect you to pay the tax on expected sales. It, who else would they ask that off other than artists, right? I mean, that's just madness. But anyway, that aside, um, then up until uh, COVID, I would add a couple of shows a year. Uh, I had a rethink during that time period, although, uh, you know, I, I, my business didn't falter through that. You know, people who buy my artwork continue to buy my artwork, which was great, and I'm very grateful to them. But uh, what I've decided to do now uh, for the last three years is actually focus on one major show in London every year. And that's what I've done for the last three years. This year, however, I'm breaking trend and I'm still in the process of trying to organize a space. I've narrowed it down to a couple. And I'm hoping to do my first show in Northern Ireland um, in November this year. Nice. And, it, and it's my memory, my childhood memories between 1970 when I was four and 1988 when I left. So. I've got a couple of galleries who are interested and uh, fingers crossed that that's going to go ahead, but that's going to be the focus of the year. That's going to be a big thing. And not only because it's the first time I've ever shown at home, you know? Brilliant. And where can people find you, be it website or social media? Yeah. So website is Damien. I spell my name differently. Everybody else on the planet. Thank you, Mama, for spelling it wrong on my birth certificate. She had no idea. <laughs> the internet, but 
no was it an accident? Come around. Yeah. Was it an um, accident? Well, it was a planned accident. Let's put it yeah, that way. Yeah, good. Good. So I like he, that. Yeah. So it's Damien, D-A-M-E-O-N.co.uk. And uh, Instagram, uh, Damien underscore priestly underscore artist. Uh, but yeah, so uh, yeah, you'll 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 find me if you look put in Damien because there's no one else. I have a little sticker made up, and it says there's only one Damien in art, spelled my way, of course. Oh, and beneath it, and beneath it, it says Damien Hurst because he doesn't spell it that way, you know. So he didn't say it, but you know, I didn't say he did, so that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. Um, well, Damien, that's all my questions asked, and. Thank you very much for your time, mate. No, thank you, Gary. I really, really appreciate it. And um, if I see Billy, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll send them your, uh, your questionable regards. <laughs> oh, please do. Yeah, I'm going to pop down and see him again soon. Anyway, give me, give me, a, give me a ping when you're going down, and I'll, uh, I'll come down and uh, definitely. Yeah. We'll both go down. We'll do a tag team and really take the piss out of them. <laughs> All right, mate. Well, thank you again. Do, Gary. Cheers, man. Have a good Pop day, me on, mate. See you later. Ta-da. Well, I hope you enjoyed that episode of the Ministry of Arts podcast. It's a podcast that's produced with the help of the listener. And if you like what you've heard, and you think you might be able to give a little support, there's two ways in which you can do it. If you go over to the Ministry of Arts Instagram profile, you'll find a Linktree drop-down box. And in that box, you'll find two links. One is called Buy Us A Coffee, and it's pretty much that. You can make a one-off payment the price of a cup of coffee. Or... If you're able and want to do it more long term, you can become a Ministry of Arts Patreon, where you can sign up to support us on a monthly basis, and 100% of your support goes back into the podcast. And if you're not able to do that, that's absolutely fine. This content is free for everyone. But we would urge you to follow us on your socials and show us a bit of love that way. Either way, thanks for listening, and see you next time. Ta-da. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.